Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Catholic with Father Scott Lawler and as we normally do it, let us pray the prayer for the cause of um, sanctity, uh, canonization rather, for um, Venerable Bishop Frederick Barriga. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh God, thank you for the life and holiness of your servant Frederick Barriga. I pray you will honour him by the title of saint. He dedicated himself completely to missionary activity to make you known, loved and served by the people who you love. As a man of peace and love, Barriga brought peace and love wherever he travelled. Lord, grant me the graces and the favours for which I seek his intercession. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And um, I'm carrying on now. This is the, the third week of speaking with my brother, Father Mark Lawler, who lives in France, um, in regard to uh, all things Chestertonian. Um, we, as um, so some people have commented, um, the way that I have a tendency to go off on tangents, they've noticed that my brother... Um, has the same tendency, but uh, did tell me that they're still enjoying it. So I hope um, this, this carries on. Today we're going to try and uh, focus much more on the whole conversion process of, of Chesterton, but we'll see how this, that goes. Okay, so a slight, slight pause while I call my brother in France. Hello, Father Mark, are you there? I am indeed. I'm here in uh, rainy France. Oh, it's rainy, is it? Well, what's the temperature, though? Oh, it's it's quite warm. It's it's like thirteen degrees or whatever. That ah, is. ah, is we're at fifteen. Ah, uh, oh well. Yeah, yeah, and it's sunny here too. Even though they keep saying that it's going to be cloudy. Now, I have um, the book Catholicism for Dummies uh, here, which I recommend to people. It's written by. Fathers John Trujillo and Ken Bracanti, who have been on EWTN yeah. quite a lot. It's very good. So yes, I used to watch them all the time on EWTN about 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, they're very... Um, I, I always think that they were excellent as well. So in it, they have this whole thing, and if people are familiar with the... Um, the because uh, uh, the dummies series, there's always these parts of tens. So they have this the section. It's got ten uh, famous famous Catholics. So they have Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Um, they have John Paul. They have Fulton Sheen, Mother Angelica, JFK, Alfred E. Smith who would not be known outside the States, I don't think. Father Ed Flanagan, um, who, again, I don't think would be known outside the, the States, really. Then Tolkien. And then they have Christopher Columbus. <laughs> but the nine, the nine out of the ten of the list they have made is Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And it's uh, they've got a bio. It's very short, so I'm going to read it out. And then 
Comment if you wish. So, born in London in 1874, G.K. Chesterton was baptised in the Church of England. Surprisingly, he wrote many of his famous Father Brown mysteries before joining the Roman Catholic Church in 1922. Those mysteries tell of a quiet, unassuming priest who solves mysteries like Sherlock Holmes, Lord Peter Whimsey or Hercule Poirot. Ironically, this author didn't learn to read until he was eight years old, but he would eventually be a prolific and scholarly author of 17 non-fiction books, nine fiction books and numerous essays and poems. His book Orthodoxy remains a classic for Catholic apologists, people who that's people who defend Catholicism through the use of logic, reason and debate, and for literary critics alike. So they are. What do you think of that assessment? Uh, it's all right, isn't it? It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't really, uh, of course, it doesn't tell you about the humour of the man and things like that. But um, anyway, it so set you on fire. It doesn't set you on fire. To no, it doesn't. Freedom, no, no. Unlike what we are doing, which is setting all sorts of things in fire, apparently, right? So yes, well, yes, that, that is certainly true. I, I've, I had a thought uh, when I was, I was rereading some stuff that you know to, to tie it into to the modern. The modern experience, if we can call it that, we're going to talk the way the world talks nowadays. We're all we're all very modern, um, you know. For where where we're at now, and by now I mean in the modern world, which very much is Chesterton's world, because the twentieth century and, and the twenty first century are really just the same sort of epoch, it seems to me. But there's there's always been a kind of and he experiences and what we might call a negative ecclesiology, a negative understanding of the church seeing the church as something less than she really is. So uh, everyone's trying to boil it down to something smaller. So you've got, on the one hand, you have your, uh, what did they used to be called, Catholics for a changing church or something, you know, that kind of yeah. that branch of people. Yeah. And then on the other, you'd have your Sedivacantists and your Pius X, Pius V, Pius the whatever, Pius the two and a half. You know, yeah. all these bits. So, but everyone is trying to to uh, misappropriate the the concept of church to mean something smaller, something less Catholic, something less real, less universal. Uh, and then you know, some people are viewing the church as having lost its way in some distant century, or after some particular council. Now, it's all very well to to disagree with with uh, with things, but you know. There's a limit. Uh, uh, what Pope Benedict re referred to as the hermeneutic of rupture. Yes. But the problem with these things is that they always end up with a diminished understanding of, of the church. Now, um, the, Chesterton talks about this, and he talks about how uh, that when you do that, when you do that kind of thing, you're yes, you're opening a door, but it's always into a smaller room. And every time you open another door, it's into a smaller and smaller and smaller room. The world gets smaller. Uh, and he says, and this is a direct quote from him, only when a man has entered the church does he find that the church is much larger inside than it is outside. Because it's all about reality, the church as it really is. And reality is, is another word he would say for truth. You know, truth and, and reality. And, but the modern world doesn't want to doesn't want to think of reality. You, know, you tell me your truth, I'll tell you my truth. Yeah. Uh, reality, you, you want to be a woman, that's fine. You start calling yourself a woman, we'll change your birth certificate and your driver's license. 
But that's not conforming to reality. And I think this is why we need people like Chesterton to draw us back to reality, back to things as they really are, because it's only when we see things as they really are that we can understand what's wrong with the world. That, that was one of his most famous books, What's Wrong with the World? You know, yeah. it, it, this idea that you, you, you're asking, wh- where have we gone wrong and how do we, how do we fix it? So I think that's the value of, of uh, G.K. Chesterton, is, to, is that he shows us not, not the solutions to problems, but he goes back to first principles. He goes back to asking, well, why is this, why is this wrong? Why are you not thinking properly? Well, I, okay. Yeah, so you really, this you're, is the modern world. yeah. You're, but you're talking, of course, you're talking about moral to rel, moral relativism. That's yes. the thing. That's why that epoch, as you were saying, hasn't changed because he was addressing that. But I, I'm going to suggest something to you and and see yes. what you think in your view to with your Chesterton head on. Um, one of the things I would suggest to you that happened, uh, and in, to a certain extent, we're we're readdressing it now. But after the Protestant Revolution, when we had what we would call the, count- the Counter-Reformation, one of the things that we did as a church was we tended to crawl into our shell. We tended to build a wall between us and them. And what perhaps you're seeing with people like Chesterton and Doris- Dorothy Day and things is a, realize- a realization that we actually, we need to go encounter the world. We need to be the church militant as opposed to trying to separate ourselves from the world and put up walls, that really what we need to do is we need to be showing the world the truth. And and I would suggest to you, so you can pull it apart if you want, that when John the twenty Saint John the twenty third, when he called the Vatican Council, that's part of what he meant in his opening speech when he said, We need to open the doors to let people see the beauty of Holy Mother Church. That well, what what happened was we had we had allowed the world to leave us alone to a certain extent, whereas somebody like Chesterton is really calling us to show the world what the beauty of our faith actually is. So, thoughts on that? There's something, there's something, definitely something in that that that, that uh, the, a ghettoisation, which which particularly for us in Britain was was very true. We 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 had to we, we, it was illegal for many centuries to just. Be a Catholic. It was a it was a a capital crime to be a Catholic priest in England. You know, just to be a priest in England was capital crime, and you could be executed for nothing else other than being yeah. in England and being a Catholic priest. So, it, it, of necessity, you end up with with a, a a different outlook than you would have, for example, in America, which grows out of. The whole idea of religious freedom—that's what the founding fathers. The, the, uh, the, that's why they they ran away from Queen Elizabeth the first for the same reason that Catholics were running away, because the, the Puritans were being uh, oppressed. Because any religion that's not their religion was was being oppressed. So you have a different, perhaps a different mindset, and maybe a better understanding of of uh, diversity. However, what we've got now, I think, is is a problem where. Uh, everything gets mashed up into into a, a, an amalgam of, of of stuff, and and it's funny. But when you think about about religion, religion, sh- people say you know religion shouldn't divide us. Well, what else can it do? Because either either what we believe is true, or it isn't. Yeah. if it is, yeah. then it means that what the Muslims believe can't be true. 
So it's not a matter of the divisions that we have should be just recognized. And it doesn't mean you have to oppress people and it doesn't mean you have to, but you can't agree. We can't agree to differ. We can't agree that perhaps Muhammad was the prophet. We can't agree that, you know, perhaps the Buddha was right after all. We have to say, no, Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And, and that there is, <laughs> there is no name outside of, outside of that. Christ is the only one who could save us. We, we can't be saved by the Buddha, by Hinduism, by... Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah. I remember, remember when I was in seminary in the Netherlands, um, one of the priests said, and really what we should be doing is we should be encouraging people to be the best where they're at. Um, the, the best Episcopalian, the best Baptist, the best uh, Muslim and stuff. And I said to him, I was the youngest, I was 18. And um, as you know, I wasn't slow in giving my opinion. And I said to him, so what if you're a Satanist? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, so if you meet somebody who's a Satanist, if you to say to them, you don't need to convert, I want you to be the, just be the best Satanist you can be. And he said, you're being flippant. And I said, no, I'm showing you that what you said is nonsense. And you're uh, just being logical, and that is the big problem with the modern world. We're meant to understand and accept everyone uh, until they get to, to the state that they, what they're saying is something that is unacceptable to the modern world uh, and unacceptable to, to our modern way of looking at the world because it, it, is, it is just postmodernism, really. We're just... We're just uh, we're just spitting at that at the world and saying no. Everything that you believed in the past was 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 uh, was rubbish, and everything that we believe must be wonderful. I mean, for example, what what you're talking about is is uh, is great. I mean, because if you look at uh, how Jesus deals with that, he often deals with those things through Father Brown. Father Brown becomes a, a little avatar through which he can he can preach about those things. I mean, for example, he he he's, he's, he said uh, that um, uh, in one of his daily news. So he's writing this for the for the populace, for people who are reading a newspaper. So they're not Catholics. He's not writing this for Catholics or for religious people, but just for everyone. He talks about how Christ quote pardons evil, but he will not ignore it. So whereas you know we we, we um, Father whereas Father Brown he gets Father Brown to talk about. Um, Penitence, for example, is, you know, um, he talks, there's one wonderful uh, occasion when in, in one of the stories, which is after his, after Jesus' conversion. So, uh, he's, he's, he is a Catholic and he's writing about this little Catholic priest in The Man with Two Beards, uh, which is a rather ridiculous story. Uh, it's a bit like with the Sherlock Holmes story about the, 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 the woman who ends up dating her stepfather. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it, it beggars belief, but it's not that that's not his point. His point isn't that this is a believable story. His point is to make theological points. He talks about how Father Brown speaks up because he's the confessor of the of the the murder victim, who is a reformed burglar, and everyone is just saying, "Well, he's he's a wicked man because he was a he was a thief." And and then Father Brown says, it, it, "It's an understatement to say that this man's reformation was sincere." He was one of the great penitents who managed to make more out of penitence than others make out of virtue. He says, mm. I, I was his confessor, yes, but I went to him for comfort because it was good to be near such a good man. Uh, and then the, 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 the people around him say, oh, how can that be? Because he was a convicted thief. 
And Father Brown says, yes, and only a convicted thief as ever in this world held the assurance, this night thou shalt be with me in paradise. So he, he brings us all the time back to the idea of repentance. That He, he says, for example, in, in, um, in his book on, on Rome, that, on his little travelogue going to Rome, he says that uh, sin is not, what, uh, is not what condemns people to hell. But in penitence, yeah. it's it's not sin. The sin is not, the sin is not the issue. Uh, the, um, and then that, it reminds me of that wonderful uh, in Lady Windermere's fan shot, uh, uh, by Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde in Lady Windermere's fan has, has two wonderful things. He says the through through one of his characters, Lord Illingworth. Uh, he says, um, you know, every 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 uh, every saint has a past and yes. every sinner yes. a future. Yes. It's a, yes. A, it's a very Catholic idea. Yes. Yeah. And, and Oscar Wilde died a Catholic. Um, the, and, and, you know, this is the, the big problem that we have, that people have with, with, say, for example, someone like him. or And I heard it recently about, about Frank Sinatra, uh, where people say, oh, they live this terrible life, and then at the, on their deathbed they convert Catholicism. John Wayne was another one. Uh, and uh, the, and the people seem to they, they seem to resent the idea, but he finds forgiveness and penitence at the end. We should be rejoicing Absolutely. that people find, yeah. find repentance yeah. at the end. We should we should be proud of them because the Chesterton says uh, again through Father Brown that you know um, you, you he says to these people in one of the stories uh, you 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 think you're wonderful because you could never commit such a crime. But I, I, I ask you this: If you had committed such a crime, could you confess such a crime? Yeah. So, the idea of of penitence is is the one thing that we that we that the world is crying out for. He says, you know, things must be faced in order to be forgiven. But the problem with the modern world is we we can't we don't face them. Well, actually, um, um, are you familiar with? I mean, I know you'll know who he is, but are you familiar with the? Life story of Blessed uh, Bartolomeo Longo. No. So Bartolomeo Longo was the the one who created the Marian Shrine, the National Marian Shrine at Pompeii in Italy, and he was from a third order Dominican family. But he became a he actually became a a priest of Satan, and I don't mean like you know these people who do it for tax reasons. He actually was like that, and anyway, eventually he. He, through prayers of his family and the administrations of some very good Dominican priests, he came back to the church. But he spent the rest of his life creating the largest Marian shrine in Italy and things, and some people never, ever saw past what he had done. And he saw that as that was just part of his penance. But that's that's an example of that. People... Um, would say, well, he's doing this, but he must be stealing the money, because you know he was a Satanist. So this, and, and you do, you do wonder. I mean, one of my favourite parables, if not my most favourite parable, um, is the one about the workers in the vineyard, and everybody gets paid the same. Doesn't matter when they come, uh, because it really address, addresses this. Um, but you do wonder about the, as you t- actually touched upon, Father Brown talking about it. Where is the charity and the forgiveness in the hearts of people? Who cannot forgive um, other people? There's not 
not there's nothing Christ-like in that. Um, well, I mean, it's easy to it's easy to understand uh, that because that's what frankly it's what we're all like. We're all we all uh, it's a kind of self-deception, isn't it? Um, is it? Um, there's a great a great bit here, for example, just looking at a, at a, another wonderful bit from Chesterton where he, he says, no man is, is really any good until he knows how bad he is yeah. or might be. Yeah. Until yeah. he's realised exactly how much right he has to all his snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals. This is through Father Brown, of course. He's talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Until he's got rid of all the self-deception of talking about low types, sufficient skulls. Until he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. Till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. So until we've realised that 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 you know the the, the the biggest criminal here is me, uh, we're we're not going to we're not going to get anywhere. Well, actually, the reminding us of this truth. Yeah, the, the expression "there but for the grace of God go I." Well, that that's exactly it's Philip Neri who said that. Mm-hmm. Philip Neri, walking through the Campo di Fiori in Rome, which is where they did the public executions, said to his, his novices, uh, he, he pointed the the, the 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 executions out, and he said, "There, but for the grace of God, goes Philip Neri." Yeah, he, he knew that that. He knew that truth. He did. In fact, I was I was sharing sharing with um, the parish quite recently um, the the prayer that every morning the first prayer on Philip Neary's lips were, "Lord, watch Philip today, because any moment now he's going to fall." Yes, he, he, Philip Neary was very much aware of that. I must say, no. What Chester wrote, wrote a a, um, a a great uh, a great book. Uh, one of his. One of his books, which was all about uh, one of his fiction books, sort of a detective-y type fiction, um, which which has a a fellow who's who's constantly appearing to commit crimes, but uh, but he, he he's what he's doing is breaking into houses and leaving people presents, and uh, he's, he's it looks like he's doing criminal things, but he's not, and it's very odd until you realise that what what happens is. We, we find out in the end that his that his father, uh, his father was a very corrupt man, and he inherited his, uh, his father's money and everything. And then he says uh, that he, when his father died, he said, "I swore in that moment that I would be called everything he ought to be called. I would have the name of a thief because he deserved it. I would be despised and rejected, and perhaps go to jail because I chose, after that fashion, to be my father. I would inherit. I would be his heir." And then he, he so he, he, he thinks that somebody, he says, that this, there must be a balance. Somebody must be needlessly good to weigh down the scales for those who have been needlessly bad. And that it's the whole idea of atonement. Yeah. That just big on atonement. He get, you, you see this a lot in his, but that, that's, that's one of those things that the world, frankly, the man who knew too much, uh, is the book. It's one of the things that you just don't get. Uh, nowadays, it's a, the, the the book in question there is Four Faultless Felons, which is is a, a, one of his sort of lesser works in a way. But in the man who who, uh, who knew too much, uh, which has got nothing to do with the with the, uh, the movie, 
yeah. Hitchcock film, which is a wonderful film, but it's, it's nothing to do with well, two films. Hitchcock made that film twice, but uh, it's nothing to do with that. But this was published. The Man Who Knew Too Much was published in 1922, which is the same year he becomes a Catholic. He actually converts, and and the the protagonist of the book, Horn Fisher, he in every one of the stories he allows the murderer to get away, uh, and we're we're kind of. You're left wondering, has he done this? At the end of the chapter, you're left, why, why is he, why is he doing this? And in fact, there's a great moment in, in the, the fifth story, the fifth chapter, where, uh, he goes to a, a fancy dress thing and he dresses up in sackcloth. Uh, and when he's asked why, he says, because it's the only costume fit for a gentleman. <laughs> you know, yeah. So the whole idea of penitence comes in again and again and again. And, and, and uh, he says, he gets his character to say, I want to tell you and all the modern world a secret. You will never get to the good in people until you've been to the bad in them. He says it's true of every poor foot-padded pickpocket that only God knows how good they try to be. God alone knows what their conscience can survive and, and how a man who has maybe lost his honour will still try to save his soul. So all, again and again and again, just even in his in his what you might call light fiction, it's trying to remind us of a of a simple truth, which is that uh, forgiveness is the is the only thing that that really matters. That coming to terms with with uh, who you are. For, uh, he, how does he sum that up? In his autobiography, for example, he talks about how these doctrines doctrines of of redemption and forgiveness uh, link up. My whole life from the beginning, he says, as no other doctrine could do. And especially it settled simultaneously the two problems of my childhood happiness, my boyish brooding. He talks about how in his in his adolescence he, he became very insular and, and worried all the time about his own sins. He says, they especially affected one idea, which I hope it's not pompous to call the chief idea of my life. I will not say the doctrine I have always taught, but the doctrine I should always have liked to teach. Now, so he, this is what he's saying in his autobiography at the end of his life, because it was published posthumously, the chief idea of his life and the doctrine that he would always have liked to have taught. And it's this idea, he says, of taking things with gratitude and not taking things for granted. Thus, he says, the sacrament of penance gives a new life and reconciles a man to all living but it doesn't do so as the optimists and hedonists and heathen preachers of happiness do. This gift is given at a price, and it is conditioned by confession. In other words, he says, the name of the price is truth, which may also be called reality. It's about facing the reality about oneself. And then he adds, because he's just, he can't leave it there. He says, when the process is applied to other people, it's called realism. And that's the point. Is, is We're very happy to be realistic about other people and our, their sins, but we're not so happy to be realistic about our own sins and our own need for repentance and confession. Repentance is the act of a realist, he says. People who, who know what's real, they know what's yeah. true. Yeah. People who are willing to be forgiven. Well, actually... I, I was I'm just going to say that one of the things that um, people will say to me, and, and I'm sure this has happened to you in the past, people will say to me, um, that, that homely father, that spoke right to right to me. That that was as if you were in my head. And I tell people all the time, 
Well, because I'm preaching to myself as well. <laughs> I'm not. Well, that, that's always. I mean, you know, you must preach. To, you must preach to yourself because God knows we need it both. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the wonderful thing he says, which is in his short history of England, so it's not one of his theological books. But it's just, it's just, he just writes the short history of England. It's just a, a historical book. And he talk, he, he refers to the church. He's talking about the, Medi- the, the Middle Ages. And he talks about the church as being, quote, a divine detective who helps the criminal to escape by a plea of guilty. And this is, this is what he sees. This is why he becomes a Catholic. He becomes a Catholic because of the church's, uh, as he puts it, its positive uh, ability to actually forgive sins. This is why he leaves Anglicanism. He has a problem with Anglicanism's uh, understanding of confession. In high Anglicanism, you could have, in, in his day, the, the confession was possible, but only if your conscience pressed you, etc. Because they didn't have it as a sacrament. Yeah. And he says, well, listen, either, either confession, and this is long before, he says this long before he becomes a Catholic. He's, he says, either confession is, is for everyone or it's for no one. It, it can't be just for those whose conscience is bothering him. Absolutely. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's those kinds of things that drive him towards, towards the Catholic Church. And, and the, when, when you, in Maisie Ward's book, Maisie Ward uh, wrote uh, the, the the first biography of Chesterton. She was she was a great friend of, of the Chestertons. Uh, she she talks about him actually going to confession, and she she tells us that that he went to confession because he had to, not because he wanted to. He wasn't one of those people who actually liked going to confession. He hated it, and. and uh, uh, and that's a wonderful thing to realise that a man who talks all the time about repentance and the sacrament doesn't actually like it. He doesn't actually. It's not something he does because he, he gets great because he likes it. He does it because he needs to do it. Yes. And, and so there's a proper understanding there of what of what penitence and, and uh, the sacrament of, of penance really is. Right. So the, let, let's. Um... When did he start entertaining, from your own studies, when did he start entertaining the idea of taking that step beyond high Anglicanism? How, how did it well, begin to manifest itself? Well, he says that, that from, from around uh, 1912, he was, he was thinking about it. And, uh, and things like confession become the thing. And so he has that, that conversation that I was just talking about about Anglicanism all came about. Uh, there, there were there were various uh, various things he was getting involved in, things that are of no interest to, to Catholics at all, and were of very limited interest to anyone else in, in the, in the uh, Edwardian era. But the differences in the Church of England over the prayer book and various things. But he got involved in all of that because he was at that point an Anglican. Uh, and I think that comes to the point where he just realizes that, that uh, the church has the answer to the things he needs. But Francis, his wife, uh, is a, is a high, practicing high Anglican. All the people he, he, he knows in, in, in Anglicanism are, are good people, people he likes, people he, he respects. So it does take him a, a while. Uh, but when eventually in 1922, he decides, to, to become a Catholic, and uh, he he had a there was some conversations he had, but through by letter 
with various priests that he knew, like Father Ronald Knox. He wrote some letters to Ronald Knox. He also spoke to people like Elia Belloc, who, of course, encouraged him. But the funny thing is, you, when you read, you read about what happened with Elia Belloc, Elia Belloc did not over-encourage him. Belloc knew it well enough to know that he must make his own mind up not and not be pushed. Right. And so Belloc did not, uh, was not over enthusiastic, if you, if you, I mean, he wasn't. You know, but isn't that, 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 that actually is the proper way to, to generally, to get converts. You have to be living it. I mean, you're also willing to talk about, about the faith, but not badgering people. It's, cause. But when, when he, uh, so he's received into the church, uh, uh, on, the, on July the 30th, which is a Sunday, in 1922. So just over a century ago. Uh, in Beaconsfield, which is where he lived. They didn't have a church at that time. It was in the, I think it was the Railway Hotel, where they used to have the, the, the Mass in those days. Of course, there was a lovely church in Beaconsfield that the Catholics had built, but it now belonged to the Anglicans. Yeah, so, that's a different story. Not, not, but, okay, before... Uh, be, well, hold that thought while you're there. So, there's a couple of... When we were planning this, there's a couple of names... You mentioned one of them. So, since we did this in the first one, we talked about some contemporaries of his. Um, I just want to mention some some of the Catholic names, and you can perhaps give us a little bio on them. So, let's go with um, Monsignor Ronald Knox. Who was he? Well, well Ronald Knox was a, a well-known English. I mean, he was... <coughs> excuse me. He, I suppose you might... You might think of him as a kind of a kind of folk machine type character in that he was on the radio and and uh, he was the he was the chaplain to to uh, to Oxford, well, but of course he started life as an Anglican and an Anglican vicar, and then became a Catholic. Uh, he he became a Catholic in 1917, so uh, it's not not that much before Chesterton. It's only five years before. Yeah. Yeah. Before Chesterton yeah. was a Catholic, Ronald Knox is part of that movement, which seemed to be it was called the Second Spring. People called it, uh, which was a whole swathe of of uh, of people of whom Knox and, and Chesterton were were were, were the, perhaps the major characters who became Catholic from Anglicanism at that period. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't seem to continue. The the but the world changed, of course, as well. But Ronald Knox was—he uh, was a, a great—he was a scholar and a writer. He was also a, a writer of uh, detective fiction, which which they had in common. But he was one of the one of the great friends of of, uh, of Chesterton, and in fact gave his gave the the eulogy at the at the memorial service at, at Westminster Cathedral for Chesterton. Okay, Father John O'Connor. John O'Connor was was the uh, was the, the priest that, that Chesterton uh, based Father Brown on. He was an, uh, an Irishman who was a, was a priest in, in what's now the diocese that I belong to, the diocese of Leeds. Uh, but then, when he was ordained, it was probably the diocese of Beverly or something before it split into other dioceses. Uh, and he was a, he's a, an extraordinary man as well. Uh, in later life, he he was very involved in the in the uh, the liturgical movement 
was the first country, the first uh, first church in the country, I think, that he built in Bradford uh, that was round, a round church. Uh, it's still there. It's a bit ugly, but that was in the 1930s, I think. Anyway, so far, he was the he was the the the, the man that uh, Chesterton met in I think 1908. Uh, could have been earlier than that. I'd have to check that. Uh, it would be earlier than that actually. And uh, he 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 was a he was a very very well read man. He was he was uh, he was friends with people like Evelyn War and, and the Ditchling crowd. Eric Gill, those the, the yeah, artists. Right. He was he was a, he was a a, a, a Renaissance man in a way. Okay. Uh, he eventually wrote his own uh, his own book about. Uh, it was called I think it was called um, about Father Brown. So 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 we get a lot of we get a lot from his book about his relationship with with Chesterton and what Chesterton thought, particularly about things like conversion and and uh, and, okay. and his Catholic practice. Um, Father Ignatius Rice. Ignatius Rice, <laughs> he's the famous cricketer, believe it or not. Ignatius Rice was a was a Benedictine, and he was the headmaster of uh, of the the school at Dowie at the Dowie Abbey, uh, which is an English Benedictine abbey that came over after the after the restoration of the hierarchy from from Dowie, uh, and he was a, he was a, uh, a close friend as well. These people were all. Uh, well, certainly in the case of uh, Ronald Knox and Ignatius Rice, they were born in the, 18, the late eighteen eighties, whereas you know Chesterton is, like, you know, in seventy four. So, so they're, they're about twelve or fourteen years younger than him. Um, Vincent McNabb. Contemporaries, but, uh, yeah, Father Vincent McNabb. Well, Vincent McNabb was a Dominican who was very, again very well known. He was he was uh, he was the editor of of. Blackfriars magazine, I think. Um, Vincent McNabb's a uh, sort of forgotten figure now, I think, unfortunately. But he was a great writer and theologian. Um, there's a lovely story. He goes to the the the, the deathbed of of Chesterton, and uh, and he he after Chesterton died, uh, he, he um, Father McNabb picks up Chesterton's pen and kisses it. It's kind of a recognition that this is not a soppy. This is not a soppy man. This was a man who who used to preach uh, publicly and uh, and be berated. He was he was a, a staunch fighter. Uh, but it was a, it's a recognition that that Chesterton had been uh, a great champion apologist, a great champion of the faith, yeah. and, that, and that his weapon had been his pen. I seem to recall, remember reading something about how Father Vincent McNabb never used public transport. He walked everywhere because he, he was oh, he trusted that God would put in his path the people who he needed to meet or something like that. So, um, okay, now, two lay people. I'm going to say them both together and you can explain why. Frank Sheed and Maisie Ward. Well, they, they were uh, Catholic uh, publishers and... Um I mean, Frank Sheet was a group. They were writers as well. I mean, Frank Sheet was a prolific writer. And they, they founded Sheet and Ward, which is a Catholic publishing, uh, house. Uh, their daughter, Maisie Ward, was the one who wrote Chesterton's, uh, first biography and then a, a second volume of that, uh, called Return to, 
to Chesterton. She, so they were they were great. They were friends of his as well, and uh, so they were all part of a kind of um, you might call a Catholic Renaissance because Catholicism was still not uh, it was not a it was not a, a fashionable thing. It, well, it wasn't the, soci- societally yeah. acceptable, was it? That's the thing. It's uh, it was, but it hadn't yet become fashionable. It was a time, yeah. a brief time when perhaps. Uh, being a, becoming a Catholic was seen as being a fashionable thing, but that didn't last very long. Um, well, for example, in, in, in Anglican circles, in Protestant circles, Catholicism was was uh, was considered to be either they would call it the Italian mission, the idea that it was just uh, all these Romans and Italians, or basically it was the Irish. Yeah, it was just. So it was considered you know, to be lower class, class people, wasn't it? Not as well yeah, educated. Yeah, down at the docks and things. Yeah. And, uh, so it was very much frowned upon, and that's why people couldn't understand why someone like uh, Ronald Knox or e- or or Robert Hugh Benson. Yeah. Robert Hugh Benson is, yeah. is another one of those uh, Second Spring people. He was not something who was known. Who was who was in Chesterton Circle? But Robert Hugh Benson, his father was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, and and Robert Hugh Benson became became a, a Catholic priest, uh, but and, and it was it was just seen as a scandal, a terrible scandal. Uh, there, there was a very different. It was a different world. That, um, Although t- today, if some famous person, like a former prime minister, becomes a Catholic, that still gets a lot of people sort of. Raising their eyes, doesn't it? When Tony, what's his name? It does, but um, unfortunately, what happens now is when former prime ministers like Tony Blair yeah, or so. Boris Johnson become Catholics, they don't really become Catholics. They become what passes for Catholicism these days. They become kind of uh, um, cafeteria Catholics. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So, okay, so let, let's for the for the rest of the time, let's move back into the. Yes. The conversion. <clears throat> so the ten-year journey, then, really, yeah. Well, longer. When you think about it, it's really since he, when he got married in nineteen oh one. She, she is his wife. Frances is, is very. She's not over religious. She's not a religious maniac or anything. You know, she's not. She wasn't a crazy person, but she was. She was a. She was a proper religious person, and and he already had been mixing with. With those kinds of uh, people, and so it just encouraged him to become more religious, and so he becomes a high Anglican. He moves away from the kind of socialist thing that with with, with the, the the red vicar of Thaxted, etc. And so it's part of a it's part of a journey, but it's it's almost if you, the this, the great thing is anyone if you did not know that he was a convert. And you read Orthodoxy, which is nineteen hundred and eight. So you know that, that's a that's a long time before his conversion. Yeah, yeah. Or if you some of his some of his uh, some of his earlier Father Brown stories, or if you read things from before his conversion, you would you would believe that this was a Catholic writing this. And people say that about so C.S. Lewis as well, don't they? Well, Lewis was never a Catholic. I know, I know, but they say that if you read his writings, that the you, if you didn't know, you'd think he was a Catholic. So, but the problem with Lewis, James, and that's going a bit off piece here, but Lewis unfortunately grew up in Northern Ireland, where which is by yeah. religious hatred yeah. at that time, and so to become a Catholic would have been 
a step too far, maybe. Yes. You know, so, uh, yeah. so he was kind of Catholic in his in his sentiments without yeah. becoming now, Catholic. So the thing, the thing is, is, yeah, the, is, same as C.S. Lewis, only, only in the end he does become a Catholic. Yes. Well, I suppose Chesterton, and as a Chesterton scholar, I guess you would say the reason why and uh, was so when did they write Heretics? Was that nineteen oh six then or something like that? Nineteen oh eight. Nineteen hundred and eight that was published. Okay. The Orthodoxy came after that, didn't it? Sorry, her- sorry, I thought you meant Orthodoxy. No, Heretics. Yeah, heretics, were, uh, heretics were a couple of years before that. Yes, that's what I was thinking. So the reason that those things sound and read like that Catholic is, is I guess you Chesterton himself and yourself a, a scholar like you would say, because he was speaking the truth and he was speaking what is wholesome. And as Tolkien says, I think I mentioned this before, a couple of programs ago, that anything that is true and wholesome and uplifting is, of course, Catholic. Well, yes, but also if you think of what, what um, of, the, of those notes that, that, uh, that Thomas Aquinas talks about, you know, as, as things have to be one good, beautiful and true. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and so very much of that, that's it. That's why Chester's great thing about reality. You know, the, 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 the church is a real thing. And in fact, that is, as we've talked about before, that's his, his, his word for the church. It becomes the thing. It's the thing. Uh, and so the, it has to conform to reality. And the problem with lots of things that are not the thing is that they don't conform to reality. That's the problem with Protestantism is that you've, 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 as, as we, we talked about, I think we talked about that last week, where, uh, say with Henry VIII, when he, he draws the, 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 the parallel there, it says, look, Henry VIII died thinking he was a Catholic. And he expected that the, that the church that he allegedly founded would continue being Catholic. But of course, it couldn't be Catholic because it wasn't Catholic. And, it had separated itself from the thing, from the truth. Yeah. And that's the problem with Protestantism. It's also the problem with, as we've talked about this privately, and we won't mention names of people, etc., movements, but there are things within within the church in the last 20 years where people have gone off in certain directions and they still think of themselves as orthodox, but because they've split themselves off the, the the orthodoxy quickly disintegrates and they become something else. It becomes as we started this this discussion about it. They're they've opened the door into a smaller room. Yes. And well, basically, the, the, the yeah, basically they become Protestant. That's the thing. Yes. It just it, their their world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually they just, well look at the, the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth. Uh, when, when people split from that first time, they, they found the Society of Supplies the fifth. And they're even more uh, radical than the Society of Supplies the tenth. Yes. And then, of course, Bishop Williamson, who, who, who it's like communicated by them. <laughs> and is the whole thing just, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking any of these people because they're all, they all believe they're doing the right thing. But, but the point is, you, you cannot separate yourself. If we separate ourselves, Jesus tells us this himself, you know, cut off from the branches. Bro- yeah, the yeah, branches absolutely. Yeah. From the tree. They cannot, they just, they're yeah. going to die. 
Yeah. Well, you see that with with um, well, the the estimates are that some people say over forty four thousand different kinds of Protestants. Some people say it's not that high; it's closer to thirty five. But whether it's thirty five thousand different kinds or forty four thousand different kinds, then um, if you don't, if, if, as a an acquaint- a friend of ours says, Father Enoche, um if you don't follow the Pope, you set yourself up as the Pope. It's a thing, well, as you say. That is certainly true. Yeah. I mean, you're, one is reminded, that, perhaps a bit irreverent to say so, but one is reminded of, of uh, the, the, the thing in Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian, the, the, the popular front of, of, of Judea. Yeah. Where yeah. This whole idea, that's a good satire of that kind of yes. idea, where, yeah. you know, oh, no, they're too liberal for us, and we're, too, and we're the real people, we're, we're the ones who really represent this, we're the... Well, you know, the church is the church is the church, and and even when the church does, the church appears to be going in a direction that that we might not like as individuals, or even when uh, the 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 Roman Pontiff appears to be saying things that we find uh, difficult, yeah, confusing, yeah, we have to still say to ourselves, it is the church. The church is the thing, and. And as we said last week, we have to sometimes batten down and wait for better times. Yeah. So how how did he, if he, if he talks about it in his autobiography, how did he explain to Francis that there was he he felt called to carry on with the journey to go into what Anglicanism had split from? Well, and, and Maisie Ward speaks about about that in her in her biography of, of Chesterton, and basically it's just that Francis. Francis wanted him to be happy. You know, she knew that, that, that that's what he wanted and therefore she encouraged him to do what would make him happy. So she, she didn't stand in his way at all. Right. And of course, as we know, I think it's four years later, she becomes a Catholic as well. So it, it's not, she, she's, they're, they're a, they're a proper married couple. Uh, he, he, uh, to, to, to the outside observer, it can appear as if, you know, she's she's the dominant one. That he doesn't do anything that will annoy her, etc. But when you look deeper, you realise they were just a, they were a proper married couple where they did things together and and uh, and they cared uh, hugely for each other. So she wanted him to be happy. So if if becoming a Catholic was what made him happy, then and in the end, uh, when when they're both Catholics, of course, it makes them both happy. Mm. Uh, and, and Maisie Ward says in her, in her biography that when, when it came time for confession, she says, you know, Gilbert didn't need to didn't need to say anything because he would look and and, uh, and Francis would look at him, and basically how Luke would say it's time to go to confession. Now. Yeah, actually, Doctor Doctor Scott Han, um, he says, you know, he, he like he converted significantly before his wife, uh, Doctor Kimberly Han, and he. He, I remember hearing him talk, and he said, um, about three, four years after I converted, um, Kimberly was looking at me one day, and she said, "You need to go to confession." And he said, "How? How would you know?" And she said, "I just know when you're going to confession on a regular basis, things are much more on an even keel in our lives. You need to go." <laughs> so, uh, and and he said that that was quite a thing for him. Because she realised that the graces that he was receiving in confession were helping him 
be a better husband, better father in the marriage. It's yeah, uh, yeah, and of course she eventually converted as well. Now we're um, so uh, we've got about six, seven minutes or something like that left. Now, is there anything that you want to say that you haven't said yet about his conversion, or should we carry on with this um, next week? Because he, he did have a quite a devotion to Our Lady, didn't he? Oh yes, so. Yeah, so so maybe yeah. next next week we could perhaps yeah. unfold that a bit because because he really did have that that beautiful um, devotion to uh, to our lady. So, um, is it recorded? What the the who taught him the faith? Who the, who did he get instruction from? Was it Father Father Ignatius Rice or who who was it that seem to have got any kind of formal? Uh, um, Instruction. You know, right. just, yeah. just, just the people he was he was mixing with, like uh, Father uh, O'Connor and, uh, and Father Knox, etc. Okay, um, and and when he um, so who was it baptized? Uh, brought rather because he was already baptized. Who was it brought him in? That was Ignatius Rice that brought him in to the church. Well, yeah? it's a funny thing because when you read different authors, uh, different biographies, etc., they all say. Slightly different things, but from what from what I can make out from reading things like Macy Ward and, and various other things, it would seem. So I'm not going to be. I'm not going to the stake over this. But it would seem to me that Ignatius Rice, Father Dom Ignatius Rice, the Benedictine, was the one who actually officiated uh, at this at this thing. But uh, but the the jury is out because various other authors seem to seem to suggest. Uh, people who obviously who have been working a lot harder on this than I have, so I'm not going to I'm not going to put my opinions above theirs. But just from what I can read, it seems to, to have been Ignatius Rice. But not that it really matters. No, but really but so were Monsignor Knox, Father O'Connor, Father McNabb, Father Rice. They were all there, were they? Is this the thing? No, I don't think. No, I think no. For, uh, Ignatius Rice. Well, obviously he was there. Um, and I, th- I think, I think Father O'Connor was there, and I think uh, the Vincent McNabb was there. So my memory is telling me that. Right. That I could look that. I have to look that up. Um, but I don't. I don't think Ronald Knox was there. Okay. Um, who was it? Received Francis in to the church. Oh, now that's a question I've never really looked at. It's interesting. I should look that up. Because, because these men we've named, these, these were lifelong friends of the Chestertons, weren't they? They weren't, I mean. Yes, yes. Because, they because he had a great, because as you've mentioned before, he had a fantastic talent. He was a great friend, wasn't he? That's well, the thing. He had a gift for friendship, really. He, he, he made, he made friends easily and, and, uh, he made enemies, uh, very rarely. Which is interesting because because he was a polemical writer. I mean, it's, he, he was, the, the book Heretics that you mentioned. I mean, people were named. The the, the whole thing was each, each chapter was a named person that he was calling a heretic for their for their social views or their religious views or their or whatever views it happened to be. And some of those people were people that he that like H. Uh, G. Wells and uh, George Bernard Shaw. 
that he remained very close friends with, even though he was he was calling them out uh, for their ideas. But you see, for him, the, the whole thing is ideas matter, and and I, it's worth having fights about ideas. He writes a whole book about that. The, the, the ball and the cross yeah. uh, is is a very sort of rip roaring uh, adventure story. Which is, it's a bit old fashioned for modern audiences, probably. But it's all about a, a two men fighting over ideas, uh, theological ideas, philosophical ideas. It's all about I. It's, so ideas matter for him. So you know, if you get your if, you, if your thinking is wrong at the beginning, you you'll end up with the wrong uh, the wrong equation at the end. So ideas matter. You have to you have to have your first principles. What is it you believe? And for for Chesterton, uh, you, if you start with the wrong things, you you really are going to go wrong. Not and and not just a little bit wrong, but you're going to get wronger and wronger and wronger, as they say. Yes. It's going to go. It's yeah. going to go worse. Yeah. If you're one degree off, then for the first mile that you that you drive, it won't make too much difference. But by the time you've been driving 200 miles, you'll be nowhere near where you want to That's be. That's right. I mean, as, as I said before, I think it was in the first one, that if your GPS is even just a little bit off, you're going to end up in Lake Huron or Lake Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. because no, it won't matter for the first the first uh, 10 minutes of your driving because you'll not be you'll not be terribly far away from where you want to be. But, but, but the further you go... You just, and that's the problem with with getting the first principles wrong. Yes, yeah. So, um, so next week we'll um, maybe if there's other things you want to say, we'll tidy up the conversion, but then look at Chesterton's relationship with our lady, and perhaps some of the, uh, I, I believe it, it's called the theology of gratitude. Is that right? Yes, I would think, yeah, that's, that's good, yeah. Yes? Okay, so let's let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, Amen. The Lord be with you, and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Until next time, Father Mark. No, thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, Let's Talk Catholic Podcast.blogspot.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider.